Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Monday, April 1st. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're going behind the scenes of Broadly's gender-inclusive stock photo library. Stock photos that accompany articles do more than just illustrate subject matter. They have the power to shape perceptions of entire communities. When used critically, they can help chip away at harmful stereotypes and push more accurate perceptions and understandings to the fore. This is why, over the last several years, initiatives have emerged to increase diversity in stock photos across race, gender, body size, ability, and more. This month, Broadly created the Gender Spectrum Collection, a free stock photo library of over 180 images of trans and non-binary models posed in everyday situations. This collection aims to help media better represent members of these communities as people not necessarily defined by their gender identities, but rather people with careers, relationships, talents, passions, and home lives. So today we have two of the leaders of this project, Broadley's Diana Torget and Sarah Burke in the studio with us. Hi guys, hi Diana, hi Sarah, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hi, thank you. Of course. So first of all, I just want to congratulate you guys on this project. This project is amazing. In your words, why is a gender-inclusive stock photo library so important? So um, Broadly was launched in 2015, and it was at a time when there was a burgeoning yet still small sect of media that was focused on transgender subject matter. That gave us a lot of opportunity to tell different kinds of stories that had never been told, ranging from the political issues trans people face to more cultural and personal things that trans people experience. And one of the things that I did when I first started working with Broadly as a freelancer as we went to launch the site was pitch a story about tucking. So tucking is something that a lot of transgender women do. It's pretty self-explanatory, but you're basically just tucking your genitalia in order to make yourself feel more comfortable with your body or whatever it is. Um, But it's like a tactic that people use for transition, right? And so my tucking story is sort of a quirky uh, yet serious sort of just take on, you know, what it means to tuck, but also sort of the history of tucking in our community. Um, and I was really proud of that piece, especially because it was the first one that was went up. It went in, up in the first couple weeks of Broadly's existence. And I wasn't in the office at that time. I was a freelancer. I went on staff at Broadly just a few months later. But at that time, I was working remotely. So the process, the editorial process of packaging a story with a headline and a photograph, which you are required to use in digital media, there's no way to publish something without an image, really, falls always on the shoulders of the people who are making those kind of editorial decisions, not writers like me. And so 
when the piece went up, I was both very excited, but then also sort of immediately taken aback because an editorial decision had been made around photo usage uh, that featured a man wearing pantyhose who was clearly male presenting. And I immediately sort of understood why a cisgender audience or a cisgender editorial staff might not understand or appreciate the differences between tucking as a man for drag or something versus transgender women untucking. And so I sort of reached out quickly and was like, uh, you know, this image is really inappropriate, you guys, and um, it's misrepresentative. This isn't an article about men who tuck. It's an article about women who tuck. And broadly, I think, responded in a way that helped me see that this could be a place for my work to grow. You know, there's no question about whether or not to consider what I was saying is valid. And there was an editorial correction made, which is essentially meant that we tried to find the best alternative. We used an image of a, of a cisgender woman or someone we presume to be cisgender, just sort of dissected at the abdomen. And so you can sort of just see her stomach and a pair of shorts and allude to the story, right, that's at, that's going to be talked about in the piece. And that was vastly superior because it's sending a different message, right? It's not sending this message that trans people are actually their birth sex, which the first image was sending. It's sending the message of a trans person could look like this. Maybe this is a woman. Maybe this woman has different genitalia than you expect. At the same time, that's not quite good enough either, right? And so... I think we remained over the years increasingly aware of how important it was to try and use images that are going to do the least harm when it comes to transgender stories. And we don't rely always on stock imagery, but we do a lot of the time. And so there's a lot of different decisions that have to go into making those photo choices. And so this project, I think, is has a lot to do with that first experience I had here, where the first image was inappropriate. And the second image wasn't good enough because it still lacked transgender representation. And I'll add that, you know, in an editor's letter that accompanied the launch of the project, our editor-in-chief, Lindsay Shrupp, who was working at Broadly at the time of the article that Diana's talking about, but was not yet editor-in-chief, recalls making that editorial decision with others on the team and recalls actually having searched the term transgender in several stock photo libraries and just encountering a total lack of appropriate imagery for the article. And so that was really where this project came from, which this intense scarcity of images that we could use to accompany the work that we do at Broadly. And that's not just images of transgender people for stories that have to do with identity. We're particularly interested in images of transgender people in relationship to work, in relationship to school, in relationship to other people, because that's where we see an even more intense lack. And the reason why we think that that's really important is because, you know, I think we tend to think of articles come first and then the images that accompany those articles come second. But realistically, the kinds of imagery that are available and that we're used to seeing really come to determine the scope within which we imagine transgender subjects to exist narratively. So the idea with increasing imagery is not only to improve representation 
in terms of photography, but also to encourage journalists to really expand the scope of coverage editorially that they do around transgender people and their lives, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. Can you describe some of the photos and kind of talk a little bit about producing this project and how you made decisions about what the photos actually looked like, their style, who the models were, and, you know, what scenes you decided to capture? So if you look at what's available in terms of existing stock imagery representing trans people right now, the vast majority that is of quality is portraits of transgender people in front of a blank wall. They're rarely ever, you know, doing activities, or et cetera. Or there's not very much variety, as I was saying. And then on top of that, there's a lot that use kind of these abstract symbols, like these multi-gender symbols or just the trans flag. So a lot of them use this kind of abstract representation to kind of get around having to actually employ transgender models Etc. So that was one of the things that we were really keeping in mind going into this project. And on top of that, you know, this project really came out of our personal needs first. And we we're just really excited to use these photos across Vice. So what I did was reach out to all the editor in chiefs of all the websites across Vice and ask them what their stock photo needs are for their websites in general. And then on top of that, what stock photos of transgender people in particular could they really use frequently on their own sites. And so with that in mind, we created as large of a range of photos as we could accommodate within the scope of the project. And what we came up with is, you know, a category for work, that has transgender people in meetings, using their laptop, in positions of power as CEOs. We have a relationships category. We have a lifestyle category that just has normal daily things like getting coffee, checking your watch. And then we have a school category, and we also have a health category. So going to the clinic, receiving hormones, filling out forms, etc. And the idea with having that range is really that these photos will not only be used for stories about transgender people, but also that they'll be used for all kinds of stories because really, you know, why not? Can you talk about the team that you put together for this project and who the photographer was? So we worked with someone who uh, we respect very much. Her name is Zachary Drucker. She's a transgender photographer and producer. Um, we've worked with Zachary in the past. She's guest edited the website and produced a photo series of trans elders with Sarah. So we really trust her and we trust the work that she's done in the community. She was deeply involved in Transparent, the television series, which had a sort of unprecedented influx of and prioritization of trans staffing and representation on and behind the cameras. And a lot of that work that was done in Hollywood in that year is attributable to her and her efforts. So, uh, you know, she's a friend of mine and she's a colleague and she's someone that I think broadly has developed a strong relationship with and we knew would take care of this project like it was her own. And she did so with such compassion and grace. Yeah. And then, you know, on top of that, Diana and I worked closely with Lindsay Shrupp, Bradley's EIC, and Rachel Shalom, who is the managing editor of Vice, to really think through all of the practical and ethical components of the project. 
It was helpful to consult, too, with outside organizations. Like, we worked with Callan Lord Community Health Center, which is an amazing resource in the city for trans people for healthcare. And we also worked with GLAAD. GLAAD Media has been really important to helping direct media representation around LGBT subject matter for years. And, of course, we we value their perspective and wanted to make sure that if we were going to do something this ambitious, that we were going to do so while thinking about all the ways in which it could go wrong. For models, we really wanted to resist working with a casting agency just to be totally sure that we don't end up with a group of people that, you know, all look the same. We didn't want them to have all the same body size, all the same skin tone, etc. And we also really wanted to make sure We had a range of people in terms of where people were in their transitions, whether or not they medically transitioned, and that kind of thing. So what we did was we basically, you know, reached out to people we know in our own networks, locally, in the community, to see who was interested. And I'm so in love with the group of 15 models that we ended up working with. They were just so fun and such a joy um, to shoot with over the three days of the project. You know, being able to see trans people in different spaces and have different bodies, it's than you might expect people to have or anything, whether you're trans or cis in a stock image photo is a big deal to us. I think at Broadly, you know, we're very mission-driven publication. We have strong positions around what we want to see and create in the world in terms of recognizing the stories of marginalized peoples and those who've been disenfranchised or whose stories have been forgotten or lost or left out. And so it's something that's increasingly interesting to, I think, this younger generation that recognizes the future of this country and the future of this world. It looks nothing like, you know, the 20th century's ideal for men and women. And so to break down those barriers was something I think that we needed to do and couldn't and wouldn't have done anything different because we we think every day just about our own team and our own the company that we work at about how to create a more representative working environment so that the work that we're doing is top notch. Stock photography is not exactly an exciting subject matter. It's something that most people probably don't even think about. It's pretty banal. It's seen as pretty dull, I would say, people sort of fiddling with, you know, safety pins or cutting up a cucumber in the kitchen. I don't know, something boring and domestic like that. Oh, I'm sitting in an office, you know, who cares? What's what's that got to do with anything? These things are useful for one of the most important and powerful means of social communication that we have, and that is the media. And they're often banal, but we have to think about the kinds of images that we're seeing. When you have someone who's in a stock photograph and it's for any kind of story unrelated to identity, you're taking an archetype of the kind of person that you expect to see in that environment. So if you are writing a piece about healthcare and the photo is a stock image of a person dressed up as a doctor and they're white and they're cis and they're a male, that sends a certain symbolic message about what a doctor looks like. That's sort of a really easy cliche to go to, right? But there are so many of them. And we don't think about trans people in diverse ways, right? Like we want diverse representation, but we also want diverse understanding. And transgender people are, I would suggest, among the most diverse populations in the world because we come from every creed and nationality and ethnicity and sexual orientation um, and ability and body size and career path. 
and profession and background. And so when the public who doesn't know much about transgender issues is constantly consuming transgender media, which often focuses on discrimination and violence and niche cultural issues, that sort of continues a stereotype in the public's mind around what trans people are, which you know, is often a victimized narrative, is often a narrative that just views the person in relationship to their identity. This story is about trans people being discriminated against because they're trans. Therefore, all I know about this subject really is that they're trans. Whether I support trans rights or I don't, trans remains the center of this, the conversation. You know, if I'm thinking about just like a cisgender man, he could be any number of things. But if someone who's unrelated to the trans community is thinking about a generic trans person, odds are, in my estimation, it's probably in relationship to their identity in some way. And sort of the heavy handedness with which we have to deliver stories about transgender rights and inequity because of the deep levels of discrimination that trans people exist in within in the United States. And so to be able to change the conversation just visually, where if you have a sort of lifestyle story that's unrelated to LGBT issues and the subject of that photograph is a trans girl having a cup of coffee in a cafe, it disrupts this narrative that we have around what trans people are. And rather than thinking, this is a trans person and that's what they are, you get to see a trans person being just like you. And it's very cliche in that way, too, because we, I think we try a lot when we're trying to raise awareness around inequality and have people empathize and humanize more with disenfranchised communities to be like, try and recognize that, oh, this community is just like you. They're your sisters. They're your brothers. They're your fathers. They're your daughters. They're your mothers. All of those kind of things. But at the end of the day, you know, the American public does not have a social imagination that includes trans people as their baristas and their bosses and their doctors and their patients and the people that they see walking down the street or the couple that they saw, you know, sitting together in the park. And this is a reimagining completely of what the public understands, but it's not a reimagining of reality. And I think what we're trying to do is just pull back a bit the window on reality that we're very close to and keenly aware of uh, every day, acutely aware of every day. So this library is completely free, which is amazing. And it's available, accessible to other media organizations in addition to Vice. And on the Broadly website, you wrote guidelines for media companies to better understand how to use these images responsibly. And I'm curious if you can talk about what those guidelines include and what you mean by responsible use and what you want Vice and other media organizations to understand about this project and kind of the broader landscape in which it exists. I'm really glad you bring that up because I really, really want to encourage people to read through the guidelines thoroughly. You know, Diana spearheaded them, and we as a team really put a lot of thought into this question of what are best practices for representing transgender people in media? And like Diana said, GLAD was a huge help with that task. The main gist of what we came up with is actually pretty simple, though. It's really just when you're choosing imagery, always take a moment and think critically. First of all, you know, think about how the headline and the image working together could shed a certain light on the trans community and whether or not that is a negative effect that's unintended. 
On top of that, always question whether your choice of image was informed by your own assumptions around what transgender people look like and the ways in which sex assigned at birth correlates with other identity categories like gender, class, race, sexuality, and things like that. And on top of that, just to educate yourself and be cognizant about various tropes and stereotypes that have historically surrounded the representation of transgender people and trying to avoid those and actually you know, reshape those by putting new kinds of representations into the world. A trans girl looking in the mirror, putting on lipstick. How many times have we seen it? Yeah, exactly. And then we really want to encourage people to continue commissioning original photos of transgender people. One, you know, this collection is not nearly enough. But also, not all transgender people look the same. And so whenever possible, it's always best to represent actual subjects of stories and also to employ transgender photographers and transgender artists and to put transgender people in front of the camera as much as possible. And, you know, I went through for the guidelines and the preparation of a roundtable that we did with Glad Media and a writer that we work with named Serena Sonoma. I went through um, the archives of Broadley's work um, from inception around trans stories and to do a sort of self-audit on how we had and how we had performed. And what I found were a lot of instances that I think we've raised already, like that we weren't satisfied with. The positive things that I saw were when we had the resources, the time, and the proper story to commission original photography or illustrations. But sometimes it's impractical to commission original photography for a project. But more often than not, there are stories that just don't, that are inappropriate for original photography or don't call for it for one reason or another. And so I saw that in our work, that there were moments that I loved seeing where we commissioned original photography around profiles or features and centered specific subjects and things like that, or illustrations to help sort of create in a different format what we were trying to say in our piece. And the moments that we really needed help were with stock photography, and we relied on it a lot. And so just to grow that resource is itself a huge benefit to us as a publication. But I think we all agree and understood from the beginning that this is like our first offering toward the kind of future we'd like to see. And we know that it's not good enough. We wouldn't have done it if we thought it would be good enough. (laughs) Because I think we know how big of a project it is to try and equalize something that's been so unequal for so long. In a way, we're raising the bar. We're setting a standard for ourselves that we're asking the rest of media to meet. And that's one of the most exciting things about this. And I think one of the dangers that we come across a lot in digital media is really tight turnarounds and like really tight time frames. Sometimes you don't have time to choose an image, right? And you shouldn't be choosing an irresponsible image. You should have some guidelines you just don't break, of course. But there might come time when you publish an image of a trans pride flag because you have to get something up in half an hour and it's a trans-centered story. But what does a trans pride flag do for a story that's about, you know, a trans person um, suffering in prison? Right. It's also just been really exciting and interesting 
to hear people from industries that we didn't even really anticipate or think about when planning this project come to us and say, wow, I'm really excited to use these in my architectural renderings or, you know, say, wow, I just sent this to my whole design team. And also to hear nonprofits say, I've been looking for images like this for pamphlets for so long. You know, when you're working on a big project like this, it's kind of hard to know whether or not it's going to resonate. But just from the feedback that we've received so far, it's really confirmed to us that we were not the only people experiencing this lack in terms of representation. And it's just really, really exciting to hear from so many people, you know, across the world that this collection is going to make their jobs so much easier. Yeah, you've gotten some amazing feedback. And I mean, well beyond Vice, other outlets have picked up this story and are talking about it. It's beautiful to see that people understand it and and crave it. And it makes me grateful that we're tapped into something that other people care about, too, because this issue isn't going anywhere. Absolutely. So my last question is just sort of on a personal level. Did you guys learn anything from this project? It was a pretty big undertaking. Um, So I'm curious sort of now that it's out there in the world, how you're feeling about things. I just feel like it's a really huge privilege to work on a project that asks and also allows us to sit down and really think through this question of what are the pros and cons of visibility and what are the best practices that we can adopt around representation. You know, we've really as a team had to think about not only what are the benefits of representation, but also what are the dangers and what are the downfalls. And I think we've been able to be really honest as a team with each other about what those things are and really focused on figuring out the best harm reduction strategies for making sure that this project is really beneficial to the community that it represents. For me, to work at a place that is trying its hardest um, in collaboration with a very tight-knit team to, to, to demonstrate a different way of doing things and a different way of being. So this touched me immensely, I think, in my work as an adult. But I think on a deeper level, this was sort of something I didn't anticipate, but I don't know how many panels I've been on about trans representation in media. Like, I'm, I know this subject is not novel, but the way we approach it is and the way that we think about it is and, you know, seeing images of trans people in that context really made me cry and have an emotional reaction. And I didn't anticipate that at all because the project had been going on for a few months. But to see the finished result of uh, that kind of representation made me realize the significance of what we've done together. And I can only imagine what would have happened in my life if at a young age I had seen this kind of normal representation of transgender people. And that's something that touches my heart because I care greatly about the generation that's coming of age today. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you, Sarah. Make sure to check out the full project at broadly.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.